I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. We're coming to you from the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for March 4th, 2016, and today we're talking about Star Trek, Buddhism, and Utopia. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about Buddhism. Seriously. Eventually. Really, I, I promise. Um, we, we both have this, this sense that we should talk about Buddhism more, you know, given that this is like a Buddhism podcast and all. Um, but we're going to start talking about Star Trek. Um, shocker that we're going to be talking about <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> like amazing that we're doing that um but the reason why is because we want to talk about um uh, visions of utopia stories of imagined futures or fantasy worlds and imagined um possibilities as a way to eventually start talking about start uh, about buddhism i almost said star trek really i, pr- I promise eventually we're going to get to talking about buddhism um but first we have a few things to say about um, star trek and the federation and aliens go <laughs> Well, I mean, because this is all your crazy idea, <laughs> once again. Because <laughs> like the world of Star Trek, part of Star Trek is, you know, came out in the 60s, and the fact that it was a multiracial cast was big. Yeah. Right? And they had the first uh, multiracial kiss on broadcast TV in the United States, as far as I know. And um, that that was kind of a big deal. So it's this idea of this future that's different than our world, right? And um, I think that's partly what science fiction does a lot of the time. And then, you know, it advances with the films and especially with Next Generation, I think. They tried to um, address those issues maybe more, even more explicitly than they did in the original. Um, and, it, you know, in, so in Next Generation, they talk about things where um, there's no money, is an issue that comes up in some episodes. That's right. Right? So they unfreeze those people from like the 20, late 20th, early 21st century, and they can't believe there's no money or... Um, or TV for that matter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there a no TV episode? That same episode. Huh? That same episode. They unfreeze those people, and one of them wants to watch television, and somebody <laughs> says, oh, yes, I think, you know, Data or somebody says, you know, oh, yes, a form of entertainment that went out of fashion in the mid-21st century. <laughs> I should have watched the episode before I came in today. <laughs> but um, actually, and even in the original series, um, there's an episode where Spock loses his mind and forgets who he is and like in a cave and um, um, eats meat. He's like with this woman and eats meat. And then um, when he comes to, he's like horrified that he ate meat, which right. implies, oh, huh, Vulcans are vegetarian. Which they make explicit in the next generation. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so Star Trek is really interesting in setting up a future world that's very different than ours and that has, seems to be more like maybe our, many of our ideal worlds would be like. Uh, and so, as, you know, I've always thought about that and I talk about it even at my temple sometimes and um, George Takei kind of um, being more, um, more and more like in the public eye, I think the past few years has been great because he folds a lot of things in, right, of being gay and being um, Japanese American and being on Star Trek, right? And that, you know, that those were really interesting confluences, I think. It's like, that, a, it's like the sweet spot. It's like the butter Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the other day I was talking about it and I, or, or thinking about it, and I realized 
or I, I, th- I kind of had this idea, you know, because even in Next Generation, even the very first Next Generation episode of Encounter at Farpoint has the trial scene and there are these like guards that have like cocaine things built into their uniforms to kind of keep them going. And um, this whole idea of like, you know, before the world of the original Star Trek, there was a time of war um, in, the, in the world, in our mm-hmm. planet. Right. And this is before any kind of um, space exploration kind of stuff. Um, and so there's kind of a backstory to the horrors of what happened before Star Trek happens. But what I realized is with like the first contact movie and everything, you realize it only happened because of aliens. It's only because of the encounter with the Vulcans, it, going into space and having actualizing warp drive that the Vulcans take notice. They happen to be passing by and they're like, whoa, someone just activated a warp engine. Let's go check it out. Right. And that that's what kind of seems to set the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. So, so my whole thing is part of the great thing about Star Trek is like, can't we imagine this kind of world? Can we, can we have this as a goal? Can this be like our dream? Only if we got aliens, which seemed to be like one possible response, right? Um, now, if you watch the Ancient Aliens um, TV show, um, you realize the that they've alien? been here what? for a long time. The Ancient Aliens TV show? You never show? watched that? No, which, what's, oh, what's? you don't have cable, do you? So awesome. It's the best show. It's like anything unexplained in world history. Aliens. Oh, yeah, alien. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extraterrestrials. That's going to be the image for this episode. Right. Aliens. But it kind of bummed me out in a way, too, to realize that even the um, utopian dream of Star Trek, aliens are part of the picture. Because that means, on one level, that we're not capable we're not of capable. doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and just looking it's at pretty politics, cynical view, Harry. Well, look at <laughs> watch turn on your TV. Right? Like I told just, you I cut my cable already. I, you know, you, you got, can still watch regular news, can't you? Yeah, we got TV. We just flash, you know, fast forward through the commercials and <laughs> I don't pay attention to that kind of thing. <laughs> ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then sure. <laughs> he came back, Scott came back with a rejoinder to that theory. I did? Yeah, it's it. it it's not that the United States—I mean, not the United States. Oh, the, yeah. So the, the, the so the, the back the backstory of the the Federation coming into being is that the Federation doesn't exist until the until humans make it mm-hmm. is part of this issue, right? Is that because um, I thought that the Federation humans, existed and Earth we joined entered the Federation no, 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 no. because they encountered Vulcans who were a member of the no, Federation. No, we made the Federation. Why do you think the head Federation headquarters are on Earth? Yeah, that's kind of fishy, huh? The Federation headquarters are on Earth it, here in, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. <laughs> Who needs a Super Bowl? We have the Federation headquarters. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is probably just sort of like a, um, it, it must be sort of like an homage to how the UN was established in San Francisco. Oh. Like the, the, the first signing of the UN, the first you know, UN charter or whatever hmm. was done in San Francisco. So I'm hmm. sure that the writers of Star Trek were like, this would be a place where you would do a sort of galactic level version of the UN, which is really what the Federation is, right? Certainly not LA. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably where Gene Roddenberry was, right? Yeah, of course he was. But I mean, you you wouldn't have done, uh, well, regardless of where you would actually sign the Federation Charter, I'm sure that that's the the, the the Starship, the Starship? No, the the Star Federation, whatever, is it the the Federation? Federation of Planets, that's the Mm -hmm. name I'm looking for. 
um, is basically a galactic level version of the UN, right? It's like mm-hmm. a collection of autonomous, independent um, planets and systems that have joined together in some sort of shared governance. Mm-hmm. Is one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. I think um, the more cynical view, and this I think actually comes up right in uh, some of the episodes, particularly in Next Generation, where um, uh, Romulans, Kardashians, other people that the Federation has not. Has not have not joined the Federation, and even the Klingons occasionally, right? Or like, well, the Federation is really this, you know, basically a homogenizing sort of force, right? Mm-hmm. That's I, I don't know if they ever use the word colonial or imperial, but that that's sort of the the implication there, mm-hmm. right? Is mm-hmm. that you become part of the Federation, and then you sort of lose part of your autonomy and part of your original culture, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a kind of a, a tension, mm-hmm. right, within the series that I think also reflects our own anxieties about the UN, right? Or about mm-hmm. other... Um, one world, one world, one world government or something. Right? Right. That you sort of, or globalization or other right. kinds of um, totalizing colonial imperial paradigms where local, autonomous, independent identity is sort of glossed over in mm-hmm. favor of a sort of totalizing mm-hmm. force. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the weird thing there, right, is that like you're saying that the Federation wouldn't have come into existence or this sort of utopian future Earth wouldn't exist without aliens. Once we reach that point, evolutionarily we take speaking, we're the we revert back into this sort of totalizing, <laughs> homogenizing, right. colonial sort of thing, which, uh, which is probably what Q is on to when he does the counter at Farpoint and, and he's mm-hmm. all upset at the mm-hmm. humans for mm-hmm. not being, you know, Q like or whatever. I, I don't. I don't really like Q, so I don't. Oh, like really? It. <laughs> it's gonna come back to Buddhism. Well, hang in there. <laughs> but I wonder too. So, so one of my responses to this problem of we need aliens mm-hmm. is that maybe the Vulcans symbolize something, right? That actually the Vulcans symbolize the rational in us. So, so wait. This is not literal. I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> You're, you're me, saying that the Vulcans are like a symbolic or metaphorical representation of a part of humanity? Right. Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, the, the rational versus the brute instinct. Yeah, yeah. Right, and the whole story of the Vulcans, they used to be of warlike, violent race, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. right? And that um, through... Pomfar and all these other, um, I only know these from Kalinar, Kalinar, <laughs> from Big Bang Theory because they talk about them kind of like they're real. Um, but, you know, through techniques, meditative techniques that they come up with, mm-hmm. that they um, are able to get rid of that part, right? And then Spock is interesting as the half Vulcan, half human person that kind of pulls That's away. That's not metaphorical at all. <laughs> pulls away from the extreme of that. And yet, is always also pulling away from the extreme of um, humanity, the, the, the human, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is the central, like the central tension in Star right. Trek, right? Is this right. how do we reconcile these two impulses within our own culture? Right, because obviously it's not literally true. <laughs> well, you're starting to piss me off with that. <laughs> it isn't. No. <laughs> um, it's a complex narrative web <laughs> meant to you know reveal certain aspects of our own culture onto ourselves. Which is, which, you know, speaking of the UN, I mean, if you look at the original series, a lot of the issues had to do with, you know, the conflicts of the time. And then if you look at um, Next Generation, this is, you know, mid to late 90s, 
the sort of political issues are much different mm-hmm. and much more, I would say, much more complex and nuanced than they are in the original series because, you know, the times have changed and the reference points are necessarily different. And mm-hmm. really, the next generation was doing some sort of transgressive, like, really yeah. pushing the boundaries that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, that's... I, Exposing our our ages here. I think you and I both grew up on next generation. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, like, is it the drumhead? I think is one of the issue, one of the episodes with Gene Simmons as the um, not the Kiss bass player, um, but the famous actress um, as the uh, judge um, looking at the, the um, half secretly half Romulan terrorist kind of thing. Really, kind of yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You watch yeah. some of those, and they're totally relevant now, right? Um, set in a science fiction context so that someone who um, might be upset by this kind of thing says, eh, it's just fantasy, but not realizing that they are critiquing what's going on in right. society at the time. So, um, you know, as, as silly as Next Generation can be sometimes, um, sorry, Sheldon. Um, it's never silly. At the, you know, some of it's just really kind of amazing. they did. ridiculous? <laughs> no. That they address those issues in oh, yeah, yeah. kind of. A, I mean, there's a great um, there's a great episode of the Next Generation with um, the planet with no gender. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which was you know put out in like 1995 or something. And mm-hmm. like if you watch the episode again, it's really it's it's sort of surprising how smart that episode was mm-hmm. and foreshadowing mm-hmm. of issues that are really at the forefront in terms of transgender identity and whatnot today, 20, 30 years later. Um, you know, this is a sort of it's actually, you know, I mean, this is one of the things about science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. is you really have the ability to sort of play with ideas and concepts and ideas um, that really push the boundaries mm-hmm. of what is um, normative or acceptable in, you know, ordinary, quote unquote, mm-hmm. life. Although we got to pay tribute to someone who, a science fiction author, I think, who wrote it about that kind of thing much earlier with Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, the Lathe of Heaven, I think, is... Yeah. Um, addresses some of those issues like 20, 30 years previously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's in print. Who reads, right? you got to see it on the, the silver screen. or not. Who or they reads? Them, Come right? on. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, other speculative fiction and, and science fiction writers, like Tiffany Butler and whatnot. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's, there's... Go to the library, kids. <laughs> No, I'm serious. <laughs> no, I was going to say just download it, but I don't know. Um, and go to the virtual library. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, um, I guess the question becomes, what does this have to do with Buddhism? Do, and, what doesn't it have to do with Buddhism? <laughs> Isn't it obvious? <laughs> right? Um, I think Buddhism offers a utopian vision, too. Um, and it's an analysis of some of the problems that plagues existence, suffering and um, anger and um, desire on ignorance, right? The three poisons or whatever. And um, as mu- But as much as Buddhism offers a critique, it also offers up a kind of utopian vision of uh, solving those issues, right? And that that manifests, I think, in different ways. And maybe the... Um, Buddhist monastic communities could maybe be viewed as kind of utopian communities with people getting by without, um, ideally, you know, this is a kind of ideal vision of what Buddhist monastic communities were, but, you know, that um, they've left the home life, no caste, um, where, uh, you know, although there probably was hierarchy with higher level monks and lower level monks, but that... um, Obvious gender disparities. Yep, and the gender issue is a huge one in the... um, 
uh, Buddhist Buddhism throughout history. Um, but importantly, like a utopian alternative to contemporary issues. Whatever contemporary right, at the like time. The Buddhist that, Sangha was established in a different historical cultural context than one we live in, so mm-hmm. it might have appeared more ideal to 5th century BCE normative understandings of caste and mm-hmm. and social norms, but mm-hmm. um, anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, so monastic communities is one example, but then another example would be the Pure Lands, and uh, a Buddha land or a Pure Land um, as a kind of utopian vision, right? And um, making that ostensibly making that available to people, mm-hmm. right? Now, whether it's a, a utopian vision for the future, um, as long as you follow the rules now, I mean, sometimes it gets perverted, you know, and I think that the idea that um, religion is the opiate of the people, that's religion as a um, utopian fantasy meant to keep people down is one possible possibility that we have to be careful about, um, but also, you know, suggesting the possibility that um, of peace, um, of uh, things being different than they are now and ideally uh, ostensibly better than they are now. Um, and we can critique, I mean, I think we can critique those things too, just like we can critique Star Trek. Um, we can critique the Buddhist vision, utopian visions as well and see sometimes I think that the, the prejudices and um, pre- preconceptions of the authors making these things um, creep in Right, and uh, that's an issue that we have to deal with. Uh, but uh, I think that also we can kind of view uh, Buddhism as offering kind of utopian vision of possibilities that maybe we couldn't see before. Right? Uh, and so that's kind of one meeting point, right? Intersection of Star mm-hmm. Trek and Buddhism. Now, sometimes uh, the kind of Utopian element is one part, but there's also kind of a fantasy element, right? And that, uh, and so the Pure Land, in one sense, I think is utopian, and I've even heard it described as maybe the ideal monastery, yeah, which ties that, into yeah. the previous thing of monastery is an ideal place, but monasteries in, on the ground in real life had problems. They weren't perfect places. So the people writing Pure Land scriptures, if we assume the kind of rational, historical, mm-hmm. academic view that they were written 500 years after the Buddha's passing, that um, the, their contemporary issues were, I'm in the monastery, this is supposed to be <laughs> utopia, and it's not. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> so now my utopia is totally informed by that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so the Pure Land, kind of one aspect of the Pure Land is as kind of an idealized uh, monastery. But I think that most people don't realize that. Most people hear about the Pure Land and they just think of it as, oh, it sounds like heaven. Yeah, sounds like some kind of fantasy paradise land. Um, like I, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, but but it is for some people. Yeah, no, it's totally yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Many people, but not everyone. Right? I've definitely heard one stream in people studying Buddhism and maybe even becoming ministers is I can't believe this stuff. Come on, it's like nobody nobody can believe this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who could? What kind of fool would believe that? A lot of people do. Well, but you see, a lot of people may not believe in that, but they watch Star Wars. Yeah. They watch Star Trek, and they they don't obviously they don't believe in it like it's literal true reality, but or they enjoy they? it. Or do they? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is this is kind of part of the problem, right? Is that yes, on the one hand, there are people who 
I'm, I'm sure we could find outliers, right? People who maybe not believe in the sort of Star Trek uh, grand narrative in a literal sense, but they certainly seem like they do. And they wish it was real. And they wish it was real, right? And there's, you know. They put but a this lot of is, effort into their costumes. Right, and this is the problem with the question of belief and where I would want to sort of step back and say, well, is that the question or is the question what, what's the, the sort of meaning and value that they get from the story? Mm-hmm. Right, like clearly there's some value they're deriving from this story that gives their life some sort of direction and purpose and organizing principle or whatnot. And that's, and that works for them and maybe you don't get it and that's fine, but you know, it helps them out. Right. Mm -hmm. So similarly with whether or not nobody could believe the pure land, like, well, maybe that's not the the point, Mm -hmm. right? Like whether or not, I literally believe that there is literally some realm of plane of existence, literally, to the west, right? Like a measurable distance away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you look at the sutras, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where the ground is flat and the birds are singing the Dharma and whatever else. Like, you know, whether or not I literally believe that in some sort of literal, physical kind of sense may not be the actual point. Mm but there's some other value or meaning that comes out of that story that has some value mm-hmm. and meaning. Mm-hmm. Literally. Literally. <laughs> um, and and for, so part of it for me is like, I understand the problem with presenting this stuff as if it's literally true. Yeah. But at the same time, saying nobody could believe and nobody believes that. So let's just get rid of it. Doesn't make sense to me either because people are looking for stuff to believe or they wouldn't have bought into Star Wars, Star Trek, um, whatever. Right? Um, and there's other things. So what are some of the other ones? Um, Doctor Who? Well, it doesn't even have to be Star, I mean, science fiction. I mean, it's like. Um, Game of Thrones? That doesn't even have to be fantasy. I'm thinking more like like gangster rap is something I'm thinking of. Like this kind of like <clears throat> image of how things should be and how I should live my life. I think that there's a lot of that out there. Um, housewives of whatever, right? I mean, I don't know if anybody watches that. Thinking, I wish some, I was you, on that you show. You have some interesting cultural references. <laughs> I have cable. <laughs> I have a four-year-old, so it's like. <laughs> or like Barney or something. I don't know. Teletubbies. We don't allow those things in our house. But we get. But I think you're saying because, like, in, in our in like our daughter recently has um, because of you know her demographic and going to preschool and whatnot has discovered princess stories, for example. Oh and, yeah, and like that's actually sort of like. I feel very conflicted about that because mm-hmm. a lot of princess stories have sort of narrative elements and I'm like, I, I kind of don't agree with that, but like mm-hmm. she's four. So she's coming at it from a very different point of view and it, you know, has other systems of meaning, I'm sure with her and her peer group. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that would be the frame of reference, mm-hmm. not gangster rap. Okay. That's, that's for the parents. You don't, <laughs> if you get a babysitter, then you can crank the gangster rap in the house. But when she's around, yeah, we <laughs> keep that on the DL. Yeah, um, you were saying. <laughs> but I think people forget that we have these, whether they're utopian or idealized visions of the way I wish it was. We have them anyway. Yeah, 
um, or a view, you know, a kind of view of I really hope that there isn't a hell and that there isn't some cosmic judge. Um, I'm going to just live my life that way or whatever. Or I hope that they solve everything with science and medicine and then we won't have anything to worry about again. You know, those are kind of worldviews too. Or, or I hope that, you know, I'm not going to be happy until I get my third house that I can, so I can bounce around between the three and whatever, that that's perfect life for me. You know, that um, having um, material um, wealth is, you know, it doesn't seem like a utopian fantasy, but it kind of is. But it's so basic, we don't recognize it as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I feel like Buddhism uh, offering up uh, the possibility that maybe suffering could come to an end if not for everyone, for eternity, a little bit less for me and maybe people that I meet or I've seen other people that seem to deal with life differently than I do, right? And that um, I think that uh, the the utopian elements of like the Pure Land stories, for example, um, is positive. We don't have to take it literally and we don't have to be fundamentalist about it, Um, but uh, that uh, we don't also have to don't just throw it out. Oh, only foolish ignorant, um, pre-modern people could possibly believe in something like that, as if we have all the answers. Well, we do. (laughs) We're just hoarding them and not sharing them. (laughs) We are the Vulcans, (laughs) keeping all the technology from the humans who aren't ready for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Can can I change directions a little bit? Sure. Um, So... uh, uh, it's interesting we keep saying sort of utopian vision, right? And I think that I kind of want to just sort of unpack that a little bit mm-hmm. and what we mean by that because I don't, I'm not, I don't think that Buddhism offers a utopian vision. No. No. In any, at, at all. Nor do I think that really Star Trek does, quite mm-hmm. frankly. But it's this sort of um, easy word that people ascribe to Star Trek and that we're sort of unconsciously ascribing to Buddhism, which I think is probably somewhat inappropriate. Because mm-hmm. um, utopia is a band, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> we're never going to get through this. Todd Rundgren. <laughs> There's something, I mean, uh, you know, without having spent enough time researching this before we started recording, I feel as though utopia implies something that is not actually there when you look mm-hmm. at the sort of Star Trek mythology, nor the Pure Land mythology or Buddhist mythology and more generally. Um, that there's a certain kind of like perfection implied within a utopia where mm-hmm. everything has sort of been worked out, right? Mm-hmm. But that's actually not the case. In Star Trek, things right. aren't perfect. Right, right, things right. are really, yep. really not perfect in right. Star Trek. There's a certain level of like, well, things are in many ways quantifiably and qualifiably better in the Star Trek future than they are now in terms of replicators, in terms of transporters. Um, trans- you're going to weird things. I'm talking about like the, the eradication of the common cold <laughs> 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 and poverty and hunger. Well, okay, as replicators take care of hunger, right? Like if you, everybody has a replicator, then no one goes hungry, right? Because right. you just make food. Um, but I mean, all of those things sort of go away in this, this you know, utopian-esque kind of future. And yet there's still clearly conflict and war and people are still struggling with sort of basic human problems like greed and desire and, and you know, um, uh, desire for power and all those kind of things, right? Like all that stuff is still present, so it hasn't like gone away. Similarly, I'm not so sure if Buddhism says that there's a utopian vision in the future. I mean, I don't think that the Pure Land is utopia. Um, things aren't 
things are quantifiably better in the pure land, clearly than they are here, but for a very like limited purpose, right? Like things are better in the pure land so that we can practice Buddhism so that we can come back here, mm-hmm. right? Like that's one way of reading that narrative, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't go to the pure land and then like bliss out and hang out there for eternity. Like right, you right. go there for a very, like you were saying, like it's an idealized monastery in order to come back here. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite sure if the, if utopia is the right word for that. And, and you know, I don't think Nirvana is Utopia either, but only because that's the man. Well, that's a different band. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about, man? <laughs> no, those are all really good points. Yeah, sure. Some- <laughs> that is something that's true in Star Trek too, where it's like, yeah, as much as it seems to have gotten rid of a lot of our problems. They sure got a lot of problems. <laughs> sure but it's, it's also yeah. a TV show where yeah, you need yeah. drama each yeah. week or else you wouldn't have an episode, right? And they made a lot of episodes back then. It's before the strike, that big strike where, and reality TV where they kind of cut back on scripted sh- TV, huh? And like, you, I have the DVDs and there's like so many episodes on it in a DVD <laughs> set. Like one year, so many episodes. Nowadays, like a year is like eight episodes or something for like a new TV show. Definitely not utopia. That's it. <laughs> There's just no pleasing you, man. There's just no pleasing you. <laughs> Let me get you started on Star Wars. Jeez, man. 